our studies on the subject of Christian marriage, we come to a passage which, if you're new to the study of the Bible, is one of the most definitive pieces of Scripture on this subject. And so nobody who has any honesty at all will preach about marriage without addressing this particular text in the fifth chapter of the book of Ephesians. So if you have your Bibles, please turn there, and we will start in verse 18. You follow along. It's printed on the back of your program if you don't have a Bible with you. You might want to take some notes. And I think uh, we have a lot to cover. I think you're going to be interested in what this text has to say. Single or married, young or old, the Bible says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless in the same way. Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. So far, the reading of God's Word. You heard the story about uh, heaven, that there were two gates up in heaven. And one gate had a sign over top of it, and it said, this entrance is for men whose wives ruled over them. And the other had a sign saying, This entrance is for men who were the head of their households. And the line for the men who had been dominated by their wives was long, so long, it extended further than the eye could see. But the other door had just one man standing in front of it. And so St. Peter walked over to him and he said, What are you doing here in this line? And the man said, I don't know, my wife told me to stand here. (laughs) 
Many preachers in our day want to avoid this particular passage of Scripture. But if we are faithful Christians, we do not pick and choose from the Bible what we're going to obey and enjoy. And in fact, if you only do that, where's the challenge of faith to you? Where is it that you have to actually surrender all to the Lord? And so we address this passage today, and you'll notice that I did not do as many preachers might do where they would choose to begin the study in verse 21 or some in verse 22, because I believe what the Apostle Paul has done in the first five chapters is he's built up to show us what it means to be Spirit-filled Christians on fire, surrendered to the Lord, and that's why it says back in verse 18, be filled with the Spirit, okay? That's something every one of us aspires to, husbands or wives, men or women, teenagers or senior citizens, every one of us desires to be filled with God's Spirit. And then he goes on and he says, first in your relationship with God, here's what it looks like, and he says, it's about worship. You'll be singing songs and hymns to God. And so spirit-filled Christians in their relationship to God are worshipful. And then in verse 20, he goes on and he says, and you will be thankful. It says the spirit-filled Christian in his relationship with God is filled with gratitude. Thankful, thankful, thankful to God for the blessings in their life. And then he goes on now to say, and a spirit-filled Christian will give evidence of that infilling in their horizontal relationships in life. And he picks it up in verse 19, and he says that all spirit-filled Christians will submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And he says a mark of the church of Jesus Christ is that people willingly, eagerly, naturally, Look out for the other person. Look for the interest and actually put the interest of the other person ahead of themselves. And there is a mutual submission in the body of Christ that is very beautiful. And in general, that's the way we should all get along together, spirit-filled Christians. And then he goes from the general to the specific in what follows, doesn't he? And he talks about specific relationships where there is authority and submission and leadership and and cooperation, and he lists three particular categories, doesn't he? Are you paying, do you pay attention to this passage? What's he, he talks about wives and husbands. Then he goes on and he talks about children and parents, and then he talks about servants and masters. We're just going to talk about that first specific category here in the text, but pay attention. Follow along with me. This might be new to some of you, others of you. This is just something you didn't want to perhaps pay attention to, but actually... It is a beautiful picture of the complementary nature of the institution of marriage that God established in the Garden of Eden. And so, what does he say? There's a lot here. We're going to blast through it. Don't let the screensaver come up uh, because the first thing he has is a word to the wives. Wives come first here, just as the child comes first and the servant comes first in these specific applications. But it's interesting that they are addressed first and briefly. Apparently, it's going to take him a lot longer to explain things to the husband. But wives, Christian wife, what does it say here in the Bible to you 
It says many things about women of faith, but one thing he says about women of faith who are married is that they should submit to their husbands as to the Lord. And it's very prominent here in Ephesians 5. I also included uh, 1 Peter chapter 3 and Colossians chapter 3. It seems to be very prominent in the ethical discussions of relationships in these books of the New Testament. And so, by its prominence, apparently this is something important to God. And by placing this first, it doesn't say, if they're doing it right then I will submit, you know. Later on in the chapter, and in the beginning of chapter 6, when it says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, it does not give the children the right to say, you know, until my dad or until my mom really gets their act together and becomes a a perfect and successful follower of Jesus to my standards, I don't have to obey them. The Bible doesn't put it like that. It seems to say, even in 1 Peter 3, we won't take time to look at it, but to say, even if you're married to an unbelieving man, the Lord still wants you to be in submission to that husband for the purpose of witnessing to him and showing him the grace of God that's in you because you're filled with the Spirit. So, now that I've said it, what does it look like? How is this unpacked for us? And there's a couple of things I just want to point out from the text that when it says, wives, submit to your husband, just three quick things if you're taking notes. Number one, this submission is personal. It's personal. That is to say, whatever this submission looks like, it's to your own husband, not all husbands, okay? It's to your own husband. It's personal. And this is very interesting, I think, because it implies that it's not going to look the same for everybody. It's going to be according to your own marriage, in your own relationship. You're going to figure this out, what exactly that's going to look like. And so in your particular marriage, it may look different than in someone else's. What I'm getting at is that in, in some brands of Christianity, people say, well, I guess... If a wife is submissive, that means she cooks and he handles the checkbook. Well, maybe, but maybe not. Why not? Because the Bible has absolutely nothing to say about who handles the checkbook or who cooks. It doesn't. And so, you see, it's to your own husband, in your particular relationship, you're going to live this way. Secondly, it's not only personal, but it's spiritual. And what what I'm getting at here is verse 22 tells us that the Christian wife does it as unto the Lord, not as unto her husband, but as unto the Lord. Why do you do it? You do it because of your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, whom you love, whom you love, and who loves you, and who fills you with His Holy Spirit. And so you voluntarily cooperate because the Lord is in your heart. 
It's voluntary cooperation. It's spiritual because the Lord was, is in your heart. Jesus Christ is your example for this. Jesus is your example. Is He equal in being to God the Father and God the Spirit? Absolutely. Christ is, I guess the philosophical term, I'm just going to say it, not to sound smart, but to be precise. Ontologically, that is in terms of being, Christ is equal to the Father. And yet He voluntarily submits Himself to God the Father and He walks around on earth saying, I came not to do my will, but the will of Him who sent me. And Jesus is saying things like, I only do what I see the Father doing. And so functionally, he who is equal to the Father submits himself. Now, is a woman equal to a man? Listen, we live in a country that understands from the Bible that all human beings are created equal. And those... Those of us who are proud Americans, we believe this. We take this very seriously. All human beings, male or female, black or white, Asian, Hispanic, all human beings are created equal because the Bible says so. So this is not a matter of ontology or being. It's not a matter of being. Fully equal before God, and yet you do it. You submit to your husband because it is a spiritual reality. You have this spiritual reality in your life that Christ, who submitted himself, empowers you to submit yourself. It's not because your husband is superior in intelligence or in strength or being. It's personal, it's spiritual, and then it's voluntary. And I've already hinted at this. It's voluntary, but it's in the text, and so I point this out because where it says submit, it's technically, listen to this, in the Greek language, it's what's called in the middle voice. Now, we don't talk a lot about middle voice in the English language, but in the Greek language, the middle voice is something that you do to yourself. It is not something you are made to do. It's very interesting. So our definition of this submission is voluntary cooperation that is spiritual and personal. Are you with me on this? And nowhere in the Bible, I can't find any place in the Bible, where the husband is commanded to force his wife to submit to him. Oh, there's been many horrible examples in the history of the church and terrible examples in the history of the world where men have tried to force, coerce through strength, physical strength, or through financial intimidation. But nowhere does the Bible suggest that husbands are to enforce submission upon their wives. In fact, the middle voice of the applied to this verb means it is a voluntary cooperation. Okay? And so, wives, submit to your husbands. There it is, right in the text, three times. But... A husband can be hard to submit to. Isn't that true, ladies? Why is a husband hard to submit to? Two reasons. He's hard to submit to because he's a sinner, first of all. He's a sinner. The Bible tells us 
and you will experience that your husband is self-centered. And that self-centeredness is pushy and bossy and complains and wants his own way and is thoughtless about your estate and how things are going with you. He's a sinner. And that makes it hard. And secondly, it's hard because of the curse. In Genesis 3, remember what happens when God curses Adam and Eve? He established marriage before they sin. But when he recites the curse to Adam and Eve, he tells Eve one of the tragic results of the curse is that your husband will rule over you. It's actually in the text there. He will rule over you. And what has with a function of sin in his heart, makes him a tyrant. In so many instances, the man becomes a tyrant in the home. And it's a function of the curse. It's an awful reality of the fall, where he becomes bossy at best and sometimes violent at worst. And so, this, is a, this tyranny that men have often exercised over women on our planet is a function of the curse, I hope, sisters, I hope you are married, if you are married, I hope you are married to the most wonderful, loving, wise, kind, tender, thoughtful, sacrificial man who always has your best interest out in front of him as he moves through life. And he feels driven and compelled to want to bless you with every decision he makes and every word he speaks. That's what I hope God gave you. But he is a sinner, and he is affected by the curse. Someone always says, but what about abusive relationships? What about, what if my husband hits me? Right? The counsel from your pastor is this, right away, call the police, throw his sorry self in jail, let him stay overnight in jail, and tell the judge he needs anger management, and that you're calling the elders of the church and asking them to discipline your husband for what he has done, and then we'll see what happens in the marriage, okay? That's the counsel from me to you if he lifts a finger against you. But in our church family, that sort of thing is quite rare. And if it's not, you tell me. But it is rare, and so still, the comm- I mean, bad case, hard cases make bad laws. So if the, the, the plain meaning of the text, wives, submit to your husband as to the Lord. Okay? Now, a word to the husbands. If the wife who has Jesus, who submitted to the Father for her, he empowers her to voluntarily cooperate with her husband, what's the word to the husbands here? Well, a spirit-filled husband, it says, is commanded to love his wife as Christ loved the church. Very interesting. The Bible does not say, rule your wife. 
You teenage women, you who are unmarried, who are considering that you might want to get married, you need to make sure you marry a man who understands this. The Bible does not say to the husband, rule your wife. It says, love your wife. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. And there's three aspects to this. This is what we call loving leadership. Loving leadership in the home. Loving leadership in the home has three aspects to it according to this text. Let's see what God's Word says here. It says that your love, men, for your wife must be sacrificial, constructive, and constant. What woman would not want to be loved by a man in a way that is sacrificial, constructive, and constant. It's right there in the text. Christian husbands, you are to love your wife in a way that has her best interest before you so that you give yourself up as Christ loved you and gave himself up. See, that's the sacrificial component right there. You give yourself up, men, for your wife. You die to yourself. Your preference You are wondering, what is her best interest? As Jesus Christ put your best interest and gave himself up for you. It's not easy, gentlemen, but we have to start thinking this way. It's volitional choice. Love is not this gooey feeling. Love is not eros and sexual desire. Love is not just friendship and and being buddies. Love is a decision to bless the other person sacrificially. That's what agape means. And then it's constructive. Do you see this in the text? How Jesus comes to the church, and now Paul is talking about this mystery of how Jesus relates to the church. And he says, as Jesus washes you and nourishes you and edifies you and builds you up, it means that the husband is so excited to see his wife nurtured and developed and prospering and growing and becoming, in particular, spiritually more in tune. It means, men, men, you really care about your spiritual life. Men, are you spiritually apathetic? If you do, you're, you're teetering on the edge of the cliff here. If you're a man and you're spiritually apathetic, you're in a dangerous place. Because not only are you responsible for your own soul, but you are called to encourage and care for the spiritual welfare of your wife. And we all know that in Western Christianity, in America, in Europe, in so many corners, religion is for the grandmothers. It's the grandmothers who care about religion. It's women's work. And in some of the good churches, in some of the good churches that are doing evangelism, you know, and they take attendance in churches, you know, this sounds a little strange, but in some interesting churches, they only count the men. How many men do we have in church this Sunday? Because so often they are absent. One of the things I love about the church, this church, our church family, 
is all the men that we have here that are willing to be identified with Christ and grow in Christ and love their wives in Christ. And I commend you. You are standing against the trend and tide of our day. Praise God for that. But you love her sacrificially. You love her constructively. And that's not just spiritually, but you want to see her develop. It's not to hold ever. It's never to hold her down. But you're her biggest cheerleader. You're her biggest, greatest encourager. And then it is constant. And I love this because the Apostle Paul, men, the Apostle Paul says now to us, Maybe you don't understand this theology about loving as Christ loved the church, you know, and the atonement and the self-sacrifice of the church. That might be a little too difficult for you. So Paul says, men, I want you to love your wife like you love your own body. Do men love their own bodies? (laughs) Oh, yes. Sure they do. Do they feed their own bodies? Paul says, do you feed your own body? Oh, yes, we sure do. What, once a month? Once a week? Three times a day, four times a day for snack when the truck comes by, night before bed. As, as you, it's constant. If you don't get the theological analogy, it's like you love your own body and your commitment to your own pleasure That's how I want you to love your wife, sacrificially, constructively, and constantly. A lot of men abdicate. Let's not be like those men. Let's not abdicate the clear call to loving leadership that God has given to us in our marriages. But sometimes there are those rare occasions where your wife is difficult to love. Men, can we talk? Isn't that true? And there are times when you don't just don't you don't know what to do, how to do this. Why is that? Two reasons. Same two reasons. Because you married a sinner. And she is self-centered. And she complains. And she thinks she knows it all. And she's going to tell you, not just once, but ten times, she's going to tell you all that she knows. And it's hard to love her back in that situation. And she's a sinner. And then secondly, it's hard to love her because of the curse, right? And what the curse says about the wife In Genesis 3, it's really interesting. It's unfortunate how it's translated in Genesis 3 in the curse when it says to the wife, he will rule over you, but your desire will be for him. And some people have interpreted that, and your desire will be for him, will be like, you know, the romance novel. And and the curse is, oh, I just want to be with you so much. Right? Is that what it means? Your desire will be for your husband? It's not what it means. Let me tell you, it's not what it means. It's an unfortunate misunderstanding of the text because the desire for him, that same Hebrew 
phrase and same Hebrew word is used the next chapter in chapter 4 when, when Cain is about to murder his brother Abel. Remember that? And God warns Cain. God says, Cain, sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you. What is the picture? Is like a tiger crouching at the door that wants to dominate you because that's what sin does to us. And so the, the, the better understanding of the curse in Genesis 3 is to the wife, your desire will be to dominate your husband and he will rule you like a tyrant. And so there is an impulse. Men, I'm still talking to you. There's an impulse in your wife and that impulse is to dominate you. Not to submit to you, but to dominate you. And that makes it hard to love her. But you must. But you must. Just as the child is not given the option to uh, obey their parent, or the parent is not given the option whether or not to love the child. So what do you do, men? What you do is you go to the Lord Jesus Christ and you say, Jesus, Jesus, help me to love my wife because you died for me. I can die to myself for her. And because you build me up, I can build her up. And because you are ever constant, I will be constant in my love for her. Now, What happens when husband and wife just get to the place where they can't agree? You've talked it through as you should responsibly. It's not just whatever the husband decides, decides, goes. It's not that. You dialogue, you talk, you try and work things out. You're in a partnership. Marriage, we've already said it for six weeks, marriage is a partnership, right? It's a covenant of companionship. So you've talked things through, but now you can't agree. You take a vote and it's one-to-one. And it's at this point that Tim Keller, in his book on marriage, he says that essentially this whole submission dynamic is the tie-breaking authority which is given to the husband. And on those rare occasions, and they probably are rare, when you can't agree, you, you allow the husband by deferring wives, you defer to the husband, and he is responsible and will have to answer to God for the decision that is then made. Okay? And um, some people still don't like this. There's, this. there's what's known as the egalitarian view of marriage, that since you're both equal in being, you have to be equal in function, and you just don't make a decision. That's what the egalitarian says. He says you just don't make a decision. But sometimes you've got to decide. Where do the kids go to school? Private school or public school? Or home school? You've got to put them somewhere. And then you have to decide. And what John Piper writes and what Tim Keller says is this may not always fit your feelings, but when you let the husband initiate and lead and you let the wife defer, 
you are actually becoming more masculine and feminine as a couple made in the image of God and sealed together in the image of God. And what happens is you become a picture of Christ and the church. Amazing. Paul then suddenly says, this, is, this whole thing is a mystery. This is a holy mystery. This confounds those who see it. And verses 26, 27, and verse 32 are now all about the fact that Paul says, I'm really talking about Christ and the church, not about you guys. And you are to look like a mystery. I wonder if people say that about your marriage, those of you who are married. I mean, maybe they would say, it's a mystery that Nina has stayed with John so long. Right? Okay. But that's not the mystery he's talking about here. He is talking about this mysterious, beautiful relationship of Jesus Christ to his bride, the church. And you are to display the greatness of Christianity in your own marriage. That is your calling here. You're going to show how a relationship of sacrificial and constructive and constant love and how a relationship of cooperation, working together, shows forth what? The way Jesus loves us and the way we love Him. Isn't it true? Isn't it true that the church, you and we, we are the church, isn't it true of us that we have to submit ourselves to Him? Is there anybody here who questions whether Jesus is the head of the church? You know, I'm not the head of the church. Who's the head of the North Shore Community Church and the universal church? Jesus Christ. No debate on this. And so we submit to Him, and we surrender to Him, and we defer to Him, and we have to give up things like our darling sins. You know, what's your favorite sin? And you know He's working on you, and He's calling you to surrender. And as we do that for Christ, and as, as wives cooperate with their husbands, they see the church, the beauty of the bride. And did Jesus Christ have to sacrificially give up His comfort to save you? Oh, He did. He was nailed to the cross. Do you think He was glad to, to suffer like that? He was not. But He did it for the joy before Him, but He was not glad to do it. He sacrificed Himself. And you, gentlemen, you, as you love your wives with this sacrificial love, portray Jesus Christ to a watching world. And I say to everybody here, every one of us, we all look to Jesus Christ as our head and our helper. Every one of us, a true Christian, is someone who is like the bride, looking to Jesus as her bridegroom. He is the head of the church he is the masculine one. Jesus Christ is so masculine that he makes the toughest man look feminine. And Jesus Christ is so nurturing and so tender 
and so amazing in his submission to the Father that he makes the most beautiful woman and sweetest woman look masculine and rough around the edges because Jesus Christ is the paragon, the paradigm. As king of kings, he is the head. Jesus Christ is the nurturer, the carer, the one who lays down his life for his friends that we might live. There's there's probably someone in this room today who's saying, whoa, this kind of love, this kind of love is amazing. I wish I had this kind of love. And I want to tell you something. The church is the bride of Christ. And today is a day for you to receive that love in Jesus Christ. Today is a day for you to know the sacrificial love of Christ dying on the cross for your sins and that He wants to make you new as a creature reborn. And He will never leave you or forsake you. That's what it means to become a Christian. Today, today, did He bring you into this room to encourage you today to say, I surrender all to you, Lord Jesus. Love me like that. So every one of us, let's do that now. Let's bow our heads and our hearts. Let's offer ourselves to the Lord and surrender all to Him. Lord Jesus, I want to thank You for the greatness of Your love. So many of its aspects, Lord, this sacrificial and constructive, this sweet, self-forgetting love. And I trust, Lord, that maybe there's someone here right now, maybe several people, who, are, who just say, I think God opened my heart to receive this kind of love. And if He did, you just say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Come in and make me new. Make me new by Your love. Forgive my many sins, as the rest of us have already said. I trust You. Lord, we pray now that as we come to communion that you will speak to each one of our hearts in that particular area that we need it now. And so we commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.